Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. My favourite Seamus Heaney poem is Night Drive. In it, the poet describes his journey south through France to meet up with the love of his life. The smells of ordinariness, he writes, were new on the night drive through France. Rain and hay and woods on the air made warm draughts in the open car. Signposts whitened relentlessly. Montreuil, Abbeville, Beauvais were promised, promised, came and went. For me, this poem never fails to conjure up bittersweet memories of the sultry night in August 1979 when I was motorcycling north, pushing hard toward Calais, where I was booked on the ferry to Dover early the next morning. I'd been on the road all day. The light was fading fast and fatigue, hunger and stiffness were setting in. About a hundred kilometres from the port, I relaxed. I knew I was going to make it. That momentary lapse in concentration led swiftly to a considerable degree of panic as I found myself watching the bright lights of the main road disappear into the distance. I had drifted off down a slip road and was now lost, travelling along a very dark country road. Well, Calais wasn't too far away, I reasoned, and if the worst came to the worst, I'd camp in one of the many fields either side of me. But mercifully, lights appeared ahead, revealing a cluster of houses and joie de vivre restored a small bar. Removing my helmet and military-style goggles, I entered the small, dimly-lit bar. A few old-timers looked up in that way you see in westerns. If there had been a piano, it would have stopped dead mid-tinkle. I was racking my tired brain for the French for food, when I caught my dirty, dust-strewn reflection in the mirror. Two incongruous white eyes, where my goggles had been, looked back at me, a panda in reverse. Behind the counter, an elderly woman regarded me with a steady and unsettling intensity. I ordered a beer, one of the few linguistic skills I'd perfected on the trip. The woman didn't speak English, so I ventured, Je femme, avez-vous digné? reinforcing the request by miming the forking of food into my mouth. Well, if that failed, I'd have to play the pomme de terre card. Madame just shrugged and pointed at her watch, eloquently informing me I was out of luck. A local came in, and they had a quiet chat. He had obviously seen the IRL stickers on my bike, because the woman of the house returned and questioned, Irlandais? Oui, I said, and she poured me another beer. I remonstrated, no, no, moto, calais, bateau. I mimed holding the bike handlebars. When she discovered my ferry wasn't until the morning, she approached another one of the regulars who, without a word of English, made it clear to me that I was to pitch my tent in his garden next door. In the morning, he'd leave the front door open to allow me to wash and have breakfast. I didn't fully realise how unusual this hospitality was until many years later when I read an article by an expat writer in France, English admittedly, whose view was that you have to live beside your French neighbours for at least five years before you can expect an invite into their homes. 
and here was I, barely ten minutes in the place and given the run of a total stranger's home. The lady smiled for the first time as she set a plate of hot food in front of me, all the while fixing me with her penetrating gaze. I had very little French, and she had no English, but the language barrier just seemed to dissolve, and for some ineffable reason we became very comfortable in each other's company and remained deep in conversation for hours. I remember she talked at length and with great emotion about the war, which had, of course, been particularly fierce in northern France. At the end of the now very late evening, Madame wrote her name and address on a piece of paper, insisting that I write to her the minute I got home to let her know I arrived safely. I put the note securely in the pocket of my motorcycle jacket. In the days and weeks that followed, I kept meaning to drop her a line to let her know I got back okay. But to my eternal shame and remorse, I never did. Laziness, procrastination, relative immaturity. I have no excuses. Then I lost the piece of paper. I have pored over maps of the area many times since in a fruitless attempt to locate that village. Shamefully, I can't even recall her name. But I do remember the seamless, easy way we seemed to bond, the intense way she looked at me, her sorrowful eyes as she reminisced about the war, her worry for my welfare, and the insistent way she pressed me to let her know I was safe. Did I, perhaps, remind her of some young man of hers who went off to war, never to return? I'll never know. I often think back to that evening, especially when I read Heaney's Night Drive, with its signposts whitening relentlessly, Montreuil, Abbeville, Beauvais, and je regrette, je regrette too.
So, where were you when you heard about Diana's death? Oh, that's an easy one. I'd just gotten up. Late, I think, as it had been quite a party the night before. I'd just walked into the living room that wasn't my living room to be told by my grandmother, who I didn't know, that the princess was dead. I thought it must be Princess Anne for some reason, but it quickly became clear from the TV screen that it was Diana. I didn't really take it in and went into the kitchen and had breakfast with the parents I didn't know either. I'm not trying to be confusing. That's what really happened. So I suppose I should explain. I'd been spending the weekend with my natural family, whom I'd only just met after a couple of years looking. I always knew I'd been adopted from a baby home in Donegal, a chubby, cheerful infant, they said, with blonde hair and a wide smile. I grew up in Derry, one of five adopted children, raised by my beloved parents, Tony and Anna. I never felt a particular yearning to know more about my origins, but I was curious. So when I got closer to 30, I decided to find out more. I was more interested in discovering if I was going to go bald imminently, or would have bad hips or a dodgy heart. But also there was a knowledge gap in my life and I wanted to fill it. I love stories, and I wanted to know my own. The first steps involved a social worker who helped find some information, but most of the work was done by myself in the sterile surroundings of the public records office, trawling through dusty books of certificates, births, marriages and deaths in the county I knew I came from. As more and more details emerged, my lovely social worker would regularly ask, and how do you feel about that? Truth was, I didn't feel anything other than that notion again, curiosity. Like many adopted children, I imagined some great drama for my origins. It had to be something earth-shattering, surely, a great but forbidden love affair, followed by heartache and self-sacrifice, perhaps. Otherwise, why would my birth mother give me away? Moses in the basket came to mind. Substitute the Nile for the care system of the 1960s. Needless to say, the reality was more mundane. A teenage pregnancy. A parish priest and a devout grandmother who decided to put the baby in the home temporarily. But that became permanent when, after a hasty marriage, a second baby came along. A legitimate baby. And here, I was later told, the parish priest intervened again. This second baby couldn't be raised alongside the first, as the first baby, me, was a product of sin and a potentially corrupting influence on the second child. A product of sin. I decided I'd wear that badge with pride ever since hearing about it. I never wanted there to be a villain in my origin story, especially not a religious one, as I had a great fondness for the nuns who directed Tony and Anna to my cot in the baby home. But even after three decades, the priest who made sure my basket was launched into the Nile was to continue to play that part. When I contacted him during my initial searches, asking for my baptismal lines, he said it was illegal to hand them over. But when my social worker took on the task, he handed them over to her. He also told her my mother came from an ultra-respectable family, had never married, and would not appreciate contact.
I mulled that over and then decided I would get in touch anyway. When I wrote a letter announcing myself, I was welcomed warmly by this down-to-earth farming family. My biological parents were very much still in love and happy. I learned I would have been the eldest of five children, raised on a farm among people who actually looked like me. I would have known everything there was to know about cattle and GAA. And I discovered the men tend to baldness and while we have good hips, the knees can be dodgy. I also learned that my absence had always been remembered, though never mentioned. I learned that birthdays in the family had never been celebrated as there was always one child missing. Driving back to Belfast that afternoon, wall-to-wall Diana coverage on the radio, the rain lashed down. The wipers couldn't cope. I slowed way down as I wasn't familiar with these roads. So I pulled over and mourned a little for what had been taken away. needs to let their hair down at least once a year. Today we have Longitude, Electric Picnic, the Flack Hill, the Ploughing Championships and dozens more. And in times gone by, Dubliners had Donnybrook Fair. There's records of a fair taking place in Donnybrook as far back as 1204 and it continued for another 660 years or so. It usually took place towards the end of August and lasted for about two weeks or until the revellers' money ran out. As with carnivals around the world, Donnybrook Fair offered people an escape from their ordinary lives, and all of the elements associated with today's festivals were enjoyed. Music, dancing, entertainment, food, drink, and of course, fighting. In fact, the word Donnybrook has earned its place in the Oxford English Dictionary, meaning a scene of uproar and disorder, a heated argument. Located near where the rugby clubs are in Donnybrook today, the green was filled with tents providing hospitality and all sorts of popular entertainment. Vintners and hoteliers from the city set up tents to feed the masses, offering such delights as Wicklow hams, dishes of potatoes and gallons of punch. In the 19th century, artists Erskine Nicholl and Edward Leese Glue sought to capture the atmosphere of the fair. The paintings show tents with banners aloft advertising their entertainment, traditional fairground rides and multiple vignettes. People are picnicking, young men enjoy a large brawl, two men cut off another's coattails, a popular prank at the time, 
An escaped pig runs riot, knocking over a woman, sending her basket flying. Actors from Calvert's Royal Theatre offer all of Shakespeare's plays in 20 minutes. A close inspection of Edward Leese Glue's painting also reveals well-known characters, like Peggy the Man, a milk seller from Harold's Cross of Uncertain Gender, Zosimus or Mike Moran, composer, street balladeer and raconteur, Roulette Wheel Spinning Sporting Molly from County Down, blind musician Patrick Byrne playing the harp in Paddy Kelly's tent, and renowned runner Cantering Jack, among others. Along with local entertainers and musicians, the freakish and grotesque were ever popular. Levi Leach, an American contortionist, performed in 1815, while a ten-foot-tall Irish giant appeared in 1823. It was also a time of great carousing, and fathers and brothers were warned to keep an eye on daughters and sisters who faced ruin if they fell pregnant. It was common for a defrocked clergyman to set himself up in a tent and, for a small fee, marry a couple for the night and legitimise their fleeting pleasures. The most famous of these was a German by the name of Schultz from Cullenswood known as the Tackham. Sadly, a submission from police head office to the 1834 Parliamentary Report on Intoxication stated that the intemperate orgies at Donnybrook Fair were leading to a fresh supply of young women on Dublin streets every year. As with all elements of daily life, animals were there too. From dawn to dusk during fair time, horses and cabs raced to and from Dublin City, ferrying people hither and thither at breakneck speed. In 1829, when a Dublin cabman was charged with furious driving in Sackville Street, he begged the magistrate to go easy, saying, These is Donnybrook times, and everyone is merry now. If you let me off, I'll be easy for a week. The magistrate didn't, and the driver was fined a pound. Performing animals have always drawn the crowds, and Erskine Nichols' 1859 painting of Donnybrook Fair includes the banner promoting... Living Wonders and Paddy Maguire's learned pig Toby, who can tell the hours of the day and discourse like a Christian. Now the idea of the intellectual animal had been around since at least as early as the 16th century when Morocco, the thinking horse, was exhibited around Europe. Morocco had been trained to walk on two or three legs, play dead and even urinate in demand. He could recognise certain colours and identify audience members wearing spectacles and was even said to be able to count. Although he never visited Ireland, Morocco toured much of continental Europe, entertaining crowds in Paris, Frankfurt, Lisbon and Rome. Scotsman Samuel Bissett trained the original learned pig in the 1780s and toured him with great success. Once the cognitive ability of pigs was understood... People began training them, and they were a popular spectacle at fairs in Britain and Ireland. Toby the Sapient Pig appeared in London in the early 19th century, and after that, Toby became the standard name for all learned pigs. One Toby, exhibited by Nicholas Hoare in London, even went so far as to publish an autobiography. The Life and Adventures of Toby the Sapient Pig, with his opinions on men and manners, written by himself. In Ireland, opposition to Donnybrook Fair had been mounting since the middle of the 18th century because of its association with lawlessness and moral depravity. And it was finally shut down in 1866, just as a new Catholic church in Donnybrook, 
dedicated to the Sacred Heart, was opened on the same Sunday in August when the fair traditionally started. There was some resistance to the closure, and Donnybrook publican Joseph Dillon organised a smaller fair across the River Dodder, but it failed to attract a crowd and wasn't repeated. Virtue had apparently vanquished vice, for the time being at least. I was in the BBC canteen when June Brown, known to the world as EastEnders legend Dot Cotton, slid into the seat beside mine. Hope you haven't got plans for the weekend, she said. They're looking for you on the second floor. The second floor was the home of the BBC's PR department. The London cab drivers are having their annual bash for underprivileged children, Gilly told me. It's in a hotel in town. I thought you might like to go. What made you think that? Well, to be honest, she went on, they really wanted one of the girls, but they're all busy. And so the following Sunday I went along and made myself known to the organisers. There were a few other actors, a couple of kids' TV presenters, and I was shaking hands with a rather grumpy England cricketer when the charity's PA asked for our attention. She told us that grateful as the organisers were for our time and enthusiasm, a more famous, more vital guest was on her way. This was a woman so renowned that her attendance had been guarded until now, with the secrecy worthy of the nuclear codes. The Princess of Wales was about to arrive. The effect of these words was unexpected and slightly extraordinary. Whatever anti-royalist sentiments my mother might have raised me with immediately disappeared. The mere thought of being close to the most photographed woman in the world put a rather unusual smile on my face. But it didn't last long. The PA went on to explain that we were not, under any circumstances, to try and engage with HRH. Her husband, Prince Charles, had recently mentioned in an interview that he felt the characters in the country's most popular soaps spent too long in the pub and were setting a bad example. It was already clear that Charles and Diana's marriage was under strain and aware that the tabloids would love a photo of the princess hobnobbing with a group of Queen Vic regulars, the organisers wanted her and the TV people to be kept well apart. And so we were put at one end of the ballroom, signing autographs and posing for photos, while at the other end, the doors swung suddenly open, and there she was. 
A wave of camera flash and charisma carried her in, and every eye turned her way. And naturally, faced with a real, actual princess, the pre-teens who moments before had been queuing to meet me or what's-his-name from that quiz show, turned on their heels and raced across the room. For a while I watched the scrum and fiddled with my pen. Then I got up, left the room, and walking down the corridor, stepped through a door marked Fire Escape. I just lit my second cigarette and was enjoying the view of the goods entrance and the car park when a large man in a suit leaned round the door and asked, On your own? Until now, I replied. He stepped back, but before the door could swing shut, it opened again, and there she was. OK if I join you? she asked. Of course, I said. Need a bit of air. I took a last overlong drag from the cigarette and dropped it towards the ground. You don't have to do that, she smiled. I'm trying to give them up, I lied, as we watched the cigarettes descend. You haven't seen anyone lurking down there with a camera, have you? I'll be in all sorts of trouble if they catch me talking to you. I know how you feel, I said. Oh, how come? My mum's not a big fan of the royal family, I said. She laughed and then said quietly, I'm not really sure that I am either. I took this at the time to be a brilliant and self-deprecating aside, but perhaps feeling she'd said too much, she pointed downwards. Is your car down there? I haven't got a car, I told her. I came up on the tube. Oh, I used to love the tube, she said, sounding genuine and enthusiastic. Of course, I can't really go on it anymore. To be honest, I said, you're not missing much. The Victoria line was a nightmare earlier. I'm sure the Princess of Wales was thrilled to hear my views on London's public transport system, but her delight was suddenly cut short. The large man reappeared. Sorry, Mama, we need to be leaving now. The Princess turned to me and asked, Can we give you a lift? For the last thirty years I've asked myself endlessly why I replied, Which way are you heading? As if members of the Royal Household were forever picking me up in their cars and then leaving me in inconvenient locations. She fixed me with those famous eyes, tilting her head so that they looked up at me through her long, dark lashes. Towards High Street Ken. I could have just said, I'll get my coat. And then who knows what story I might be telling you now. Perhaps of the fun we'd had back at Kensington Palace watching Moonlighting or Juliet Bravo. Or maybe of how we'd gone to Annabelle's and danced the night away with Gary Lineker or Vidal Sassoon. But I didn't. Instead, I replied, I'll leave it, thanks. I've got to get south of the river. Nice to meet you, she said, and she left. And I left too. And on the way home, the Victoria Line was still a disaster, and I had to sit for ages waiting for a train. The clock above my head noisily marked each passing second. And now at last I can understand that what it was saying was, this is exactly what you deserve. So 
In the late evening of August 29, 2013, I boarded a long-haul flight from Dublin, bound for a new job in a country on the far side of the world. Through the night and into the following morning, I tracked our progress on the flight monitor as we flew over darkened countries and continents. And as the little plane on the monitor crossed the Black Sea near Constanta, site of the ancient city of Thomas, I thought of the poet Ovid, exiled and heart-sore for Rome. But try as I might, I could not make out the lights of the city below me. And then I drifted in and out of waking and dreaming in the in-between time and place of an overnight flight. 
At one point, I remember waking and looking out the cabin window. The sky glow obscured the distant stars, but the moon was visible. And then I saw, or thought I saw, two shooting stars. Perhaps they were two planes heading away into the further darkness, or two souls on their migratory journey to the afterlife. When we landed, well into the following day, I turned on my phone to the news that the poet Seamus Heaney had died. I did not know Seamus Heaney, though like thousands of others, I met him briefly on a few occasions at book launches and readings, and he once wrote me a short note which has pride of place above my desk. So my relationship with the poet was and is primarily through his poems. But there is a topographical element too, places where I feel the benign and genial spirit of the late poet, Ashford in County Wicklow, immortalised in the Glanmore sonnets, or the flaggy shore in North Clare captured so vividly in postscript. And most weeks I drive from Dublin to Wicklow. There are points on the road where you feel the pleasure of simply being alive on this earth. It's something to do with the confluence of road and sea and sky, and the knowledge that a sacred valley lies beyond the mountains to the west. One such point is the turn-off for Newcastle, where my mother was born, and Newtown Mount Kennedy, where my parents were married. There's a dip in the road, and then a long climb, and you know by the light that the sea is just over the horizon, and the sky falls to meet it, and off to the right is the hidden valley of Glendalough. It is a moment and a place rich with possibility and, for me, family associations. In answer to a question posed by Dennis O'Driscoll in Stepping Stones, that beautiful book of interviews, Seamus Heaney says, Often, when I'm on my own in the car, driving down from Dublin to Wicklow, I get this sudden joy from the sheer fact of the mountains to my right and the sea to my left, the flow of the farmland, the sweep of the road, the lift of the sky. And knowing that Seamus Heaney said this, the pleasure I experience as I drive is all the more compelling from the fact that the poet felt a similar joy in passing through places that I know and love. Seamus Heaney invokes the Greek god Hermes in a number of the poems dedicated to his father, a man who bought and sold cattle. The poet describes Hermes as the god of fair days, stone posts, roads and crossroads, and a guardian of travellers. Hermes was also the god of thresholds. As the messenger of Zeus, Hermes lived between humans and gods, as well as crossing from the world of the living to the world of the dead. I know it is fanciful, but I like to believe that the two lights I saw on the overnight flight that left Dublin on the 29th of August 2013 were the poet Seamus Heaney embarking on his soul journey with the soul guide Hermes. There is a tradition, going back to ancient Greece, of travellers adding a pebble to a cairn in gratitude to Hermes for his guidance and protection. Nowadays, I toss a pebble whenever I come across a mound of heap stones in honour of Hermes, 
and in honour and remembrance of Seamus Heaney. And as I do so, I imagine the poet's soul sailing on in the great vastness of the universe and in the eternal afterlife of his poetry. Sail on, sail on, O mighty and much-missed poet. The Alphabet of Trees I don't think that they met. In fact, I'm nearly sure they didn't. After a lengthy hiatus, there was a plan for them to meet. But they never met. At least he never met her. He met a different her. She met a different him. Those surrogates were wearing the threads of others, speaking the lingo of dishcloth and discontent, cloning their idiosyncrasies, the liberty of it. It wasn't him. She wasn't there either. They looked for signs of themselves in these impostors. It was strange for them seeing the doppelgangers walking down the street. They could have been Beatrice and Benedict. Smart and all as the gods were, they got his height wrong. They made him smaller. They put a few extra pounds on her hips. She raised an eyebrow at the lesser deity sending out those construction workers to build a moat around his place of work, his word house, enough full stops to choke an ass. No passeran drifting in and out of the stucco in hieroglyphic symbols. Not a good idea to no passeran her while you're wearing someone else's walk. It won't wash, not when it is written in the alphabet of trees that if they kiss, they'll end in smithereens. On this morning's programme, we heard Lost in France by Peter Trant. The Day the Princess Died was by Paul Doran. Donnybrook Fair by Anne-Marie Durkin. Die and Die by Chris McCallum. 
A Tossed Pebble for Seamus Heaney by Kevin McDermott and The Alphabet of Trees, a poem by Rita Ann Higgins. The music was Lost in France by Bonnie Tyler, Rain by Cecile Corbell, Lanigan's Ball by David Agnew, I'll Find My Way Home by John and Van Gellis and Foyne Gal Unlay, played by Liam O'Flynn. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Vinci. And you can find highlights from Miscellany at rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.